Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, continuing on in our series through the Gospel of Luke. And as you turn there, I want to read for you uh, one of my favorite poems. I first saw it in a Chuck Swindoll book, but uh, it is so good, and here it is. One ship drives east and another drives west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. Ella Wheeler Wilcox. I think about that and I think about uh, sailing. You would think that if the wind was blowing against you while you were sailing, it would pretty much carry you along the direction it wanted you to go. But sailors have learned that they can reset their sails to harness the power of that wind and actually sail against the wind to where they want to go by the way they set those sails. Last week we saw something like that as we looked at the life of Jesus. There he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was pouring out his heart to the Father in prayer. And we saw that through that intense prayer, what Jesus was doing was realigning himself, his emotions, his thoughts with the very reason he knew he had come to earth. He knew he was supposed to die on the cross for our sins. He was supposed to give his life as in a sacrificial death for ours, taking the punishment due our sins on himself. He knew that. Uh, and yet there he was in that moment of humanness. And as he prayed, not my will but thine be done, he was lining himself up with what he knew God the Father had for him. And of course, we just saw a great example of that in the video, you know, how a runner just decides that they're going to train, they're going to finish. I think about Hebrews that says, we have our eyes set on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And because of that, realizing he finished his earthly course well and died for our sins on the cross, we too can run the race that the Lord has marked out for us. We can persevere even when things are very difficult. But while praying in the garden, Jesus had realigned himself with what he knew to be the Father's will. He set his sails, if you will, to face what came next. Well, what came next for Jesus would be the unleashing of the power of darkness upon him. Now, for those just joining us, uh, Luke 22 has some preaching decisions to make, including since the story of Judas is woven throughout the narrative, And the story of Peter is woven throughout the narrative, Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. Do you preach section by section, or do you just at some point say, let me preach through Judas' betrayal and the aftermath of that, and Peter's denial and the aftermath of that? So those who have been with me know that I've already spoken about Judas' betrayal of Jesus and Peter's denial of Jesus, and so we're picking back up with Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and the first set of trials that he underwent. So hopefully that'll help you in realizing why we're not looking again at the Peter verses there, the verses about Peter. So verse 52 of Luke chapter 22, 
It says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come out to arrest him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me then, but this is your hour. This is why you guys are here. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Pick up with verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus there in that high priest's courtyard mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, they said, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, into their Sanhedrin, that's the word that's there, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, though, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. But then they all said, well, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you say that, ego me, I am. You say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The limited power of darkness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much with how this passage goes with the ones that come before and how we saw Jesus determine in his prayer life to rise up and do what the Father had called him to do, the plan that had always been from the foundation of the world. Lord, I thank you that prayer realigns us with your purposes for our life, but Lord, we shudder to think that for Jesus that immediately meant facing the most difficult times of his life on earth, his arrest, his mocking and beating, his scourging, his being found guilty even though he was innocent, (laughs) innocent, found innocent and yet crucified, and then dying that brutal death on the cross. Thank you that it was not a life taken from him by anyone, but one he had willfully given for our sins. Thank you that it fulfilled the prophecies. Ones like all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Thank you, Jesus for having my sin laid on you. Thank you so much for that grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Thank you, Jesus, that after praying and realigning yourself with the Father's priorities, you went out, put one foot in front of the other, and fulfilled the plan that you'd always had. Lord, I thank you. You tell us to take up our cross and follow you. And crosses are instruments of death. Help us to die to self, die to the things that we think are most important, and live to the things that you think are most important. Thank you that Paul could testify that he'd been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he lived, or Christ lived in and through him, Lord. May that be our testimony too. Ourselves dead with you on the cross, your Holy Spirit living inside of us as we seek to honor you with the rest of this life. Lord, we fail in many ways. We thank you for your presence with us and the fact that truly you are the only superstar of the Christian faith. You call us to let our light shine, but you are the light of the world. God, I pray you'll be with us as we look at how, in contrast to you, the power of darkness is limited. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
After his arrest there in the garden, Jesus underwent six trials in the next 12 hours. Three of them were at the hands of Jewish leaders, and then three were at the hands of Roman leaders. As we look at the rest of chapter 22, as we get to the end of chapter 22 today, we'll see the Jewish trials, and next week in chapter 23, we'll look at the Roman trials before Pilate and Herod. And we're going to divide this into three sections today, and the first one is Jesus' mistreatment was fueled by the power of darkness. Again, look at verses 52 to 54. Jesus said to the chiefs, priests, captains of the temple, elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? The word for robber there in verse 52 could also be translated revolutionary, uh, such as the infamous Barabbas, right? Barabbas was actually sitting across town in a Roman-held jail so that he could die for leading an insurrection against Rome. Barabbas was a bad dude, and he had led people, and people had died in the ensuing riots that had happened. And so Jesus is saying, have you come out, uh, out to arrest me like you would a robber? He was basically saying to the religious leaders, are you putting me in the same category as the violent evildoers of the world? Well, look at verse 54. It says, having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. They arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's house. Now, Caiaphas, he was the official high priest. His father-in-law, Annas, had been the high priest before him. And you know, sometimes there's a situation where one guy's in charge officially, but somebody else in the family's really in charge. That's kind of how it was. Annas still had a lot of sway, even though he wasn't the official high priest. And they probably, this courtyard that Jesus was in where Peter denied him, was probably one that had several houses kind of together inside a walled compound. So it's probably Annas' house was there and Caiaphas' house were there, and in the courtyard between them is where the children would play, where they'd come together for meals and other things outside. And so that's the courtyard that they were in. And the other Gospels let us know that after his arrest in the garden, when he went to this courtyard, that first Annas, the high priest, questioned him, and had his thugs beat up Jesus a little bit, and then Caiaphas did. But all of that was illegal because those things weren't supposed to happen at night. Uh, death penalty cases, and they, make no mistake about it, they wanted Jesus to die. Death penalty cases were to be held in public at the temple, not in the high priest's home or car- courtyard. They were railroading Jesus, and he knew it. And that's where this powerful statement in verse 53 comes in when he says, When I was with you daily in the temple, do you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour, and this is the power of darkness. So what was behind their mistreatment of Jesus? He tells us here, the power of darkness. The word for power there is exousia. We've looked at it in another context about how it relates to Jesus himself as the one who has all authority, all power. And so there is a delegated authority or power to darkness. Darkness was expressing power and authority through them. These guys, they thought they were really sticking it to Jesus. They thought they had him where they wanted, uh, wanted. but they couldn't do anything to Jesus that he himself wasn't allowing to happen. That's part of him setting his resolve uh, back in the prayer time in the garden. So he says to them, this is your hour to show the power of darkness, the limited power of darkness. They had come in the nighttime to avoid daytime crowds that were following Jesus. They thought doing this at night would protect them. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, you guys think you are in control of the proceedings, but your bad choices don't control the proceedings. 
They are merely the background for what God is going to do. You say, Danny, what do you mean by that? I hope you catch what I'm about to say here and how it explains the power of darkness. Think about the darkness of the night sky. Okay, picture that in your head for a minute. Picture the darkness of the night sky. Let me ask you a question. When you look up at the night sky, is your attention brought to the ocean of darkness that you see? Just the complete darkness that you see before you? Is that what draws your attention when you look up at night? It's not, is it? What draws your attention when you look up at night? The stars that are set against the backdrop of all the darkness that's there. (laughs) They thought they were the stars. But Jesus, he's the North Star, amen? He is the guiding light. I think about this morning. It was a beautiful sunrise in Ringgold this morning, and it had the fog really settled down in. And as I looked out and was sipping coffee, I looked out, and there was one bright star still shining through, although the light was coming up. And it made me think of this message for today. They thought they were the stars, but Jesus is the star. Their free will actions to reject Jesus made them just part of the darkness that makes Jesus shine so beautifully through. And you need to know that when you think about this passage and how things unfold in your own lives as well. Even those who mistreat Jesus are merely playing their part in the drama they will not have the last word in. Who's going to have the last word? Jesus is going to have the last word, right? God always has the last word. Mistreatment of Jesus is fueled by the power of darkness. So there's the first point. But in verses 63 through 65, we see that human mistreatment of Jesus, whether it was those temple guard soldiers then or whether it's people today, human mistreatment of Jesus is blasphemy. So between 3 a.m. and daylight, this happened. It says in verse 63, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, no doubt egged on by the high priest and the ex-high priest. Uh, They had asked him questions. They'd mocked him. They'd put witnesses before him. The witnesses couldn't agree. It was a sham trial. They knew the outcome before they asked a single question kind of thing. And we've seen some of that in our politics in recent memory and in the past also. But between 3 a.m. and daylight, this happened before the full Sanhedrin met in verse 66. And the temple guard did this even before Jesus was officially found guilty. So they're violating any sense of rights that Roman citizens would have had. They did this after Annas and Caiaphas' illegal questioning in the middle of the night. And they mock him and they question him. Rough him up, boys! And we read in this passage what human mistreatment of Jesus is. What is human mistreatment of Jesus? It's blasphemy because Jesus really is God right? So that's what it says in verse 65. Many other things they blasphemy spoke against him. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, then taking his name in vain wouldn't be such a big deal. If Jesus wasn't God, then, then he was either a liar or he was a lunatic, not the Lord, right? C.S. Lewis did some good writing about that. And so uh, he was either mentally ill, if he said these things and thought they were true and they weren't true, uh, or he uh, was, knew it wasn't true and was lying to them for whatever gain that would bring. And so uh, that wouldn't be blasphemy. That would be them applying in Leviticus where in Israel that was to acknowledge God and God alone, they were called to stone to death those who blasphemed and said they were God when they weren't. But since Jesus really is God and had proven it already in multiple different ways, they were the ones showing how deceived they were. 
But even these Roman temple, I mean, these uh, Jewish temple guard soldiers that were beating Jesus there didn't know that they were fulfilling prophecy. So when they said prophecy, who, prophesy who hit you, they didn't know that there was a specific verse about that back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and 52 right before it. And I'll give you a few of the things it says there. You at lunchtime might want to read the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53 because there about 20 times in those verses it talks about Jesus doing what he did for us rather than himself, that the Messiah would do that and he was the Messiah. So Isaiah 52, 14 says, his visage was marred more than any man. You could barely see a man after the whooping that he got. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces with him. Remember, he was blindfolded and they hit him. Who hit you? Who hit you? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah 53, 3. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. My goodness, you think about what Jesus went through to fulfill that for us. The video was very inspiring about the guys getting up early to run and and pushing through the limits and things like that. But Jesus knew exactly what dying on the cross would mean, and he went through it anyway. Can you imagine? There he is, and he is blindfolded, and they're hitting him. And if you've ever been hit in the face or in the stomach, it's not pleasant, is it, right? And there they were. There he was, a sitting duck for them, basically, as they pummeled him and mocked him and laughed him and refused to believe who he really was right there before him. Do you remember what our affirmation verses say? We're going to put it up here. Say it with me. It's the end of Luke 24. Say it with me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice it says it was necessary for these things to happen. In fact, when Jesus later on is on the Emmaus Road and talking to the disciples and he's so beaten up there they can't recognize him physically, even though he's resurrected from the dead, all those poundings had just happened and stuff. And it says he went back to the scriptures and showed them from Moses and the prophets all the things that were written that had to be fulfilled. And here he is in our text for today, uh, fulfilling those very things. Interestingly, Even in that moment of absolute humiliation, Jesus was doing something we often fail to do. Jesus was practicing what he preached, right? What had he said back in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, hey, if they slap you on one cheek, if they strike you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to the person also. It was within his power to stop them at any moment. He could have struck them dead if they wanted to. He could have made the one drawing back to punch him, have a heart failure right there and and just drop. But instead, he let it unfold so that all the things in the scriptures could be fulfilled. He had resolved to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 15 says, Greater love has no one than this, that a person, a man, would lay down his life for his friends. And Romans tells us that even when we were ungodly, Christ died for us sorry sinners. So powerful. Now, what these soldiers did, this temple guard here, the ones the Jewish leaders had to uh, be their security, what they did was awful. It was horrible. But they were probably just ignorantly following orders from those religious bosses. They, of course, are going to have to give an account for that. If you give in to somebody telling you to do a sinful thing and you do it, it's part of your evaluation with the Lord coming up. 
And so we will give an account for everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. Um, but oh, the greater judgment for Caiaphas and Annas and others of those priests and scribes who had poured over the scriptures. They knew the chapter, they knew the verse, they knew the scriptures. They had years earlier been able to answer, where, oh, hey, where's the Messiah going to come from? Easy, Bethlehem. And yet even as the wise men went to Bethlehem to check it out, they said, hey, we got that Bible B, right? And they didn't act on it themselves. They weren't curious about whether Daniel's prophecy that any time the Messiah might come while they were alive there was about to be fulfilled. Daniel 9 had predicted it would be about the time that it was all unfolding, and they missed it and the greater judgment is theirs. One thing about being in the Bible, being in church, being in Sunday school, being in extra study yourself, hearing preachers preach, listening on the radio, the TV, the internet, every time you hear something, you're accountable for acting on it. And so everyone in the world will face judgment, but the greater judgment will come for those who have heard, 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 and not acted, acted, acted on what they know to be true. Mistreatment of Jesus is fueled by the power of darkness. Mistreatment of Jesus is blasphemy. And then we see in verses 66 to 71 that mistreatment of Jesus will be judged. Verse 66, it says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer my questions or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Many of those rulers had already decided his guilt. So there's Annas, then there's Caiaphas, and it appears from the other Gospels that during the night, members of the Sanhedrin came there. They knew Jesus had been set up by Judas. They knew he was going to be there in the the house, the high priest's house, and so they were there while the questioning happened, why the witnesses were so ambiguous. But they had already planned on how to vote. They all hated Jesus, so they voted thumbs down to Jesus. Well, not all of them. One of the great things is the scriptures tells us there actually were a couple guys who were members of that Sanhedrin council who even when, boy, do the math on that, 68 out of 70, even when 99% plus or 95% plus of their peers were mistreating and saying no to Jesus and sentencing him to death, even while that was going on, There was two that did not. Think if you know their names for a minute. Turn over to chapter 23, the next chapter over, down to verse 50. It says there, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decisions and deed, the decision to send Jesus to Pilate for death. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. So Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea helped treat Jesus' body with dignity and respect and buried it properly in his uh, tomb that he had, the garden tomb. Who was with him? Star of the day, right down here. Nicodemus, 
The ruler in John 3 who came to Jesus and tried to flatter Jesus with talking about what a great teacher and everything he was, and Jesus looked at him and said, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. It's not enough that you were physically born, that you broke your mama's water once upon a time. You need to be born from heaven. You need to be born from above. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. You need to be born of spirit by repenting your sins, placing your trust and faith in me. And that's the buildup to the great John 3.16. Hey, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, that Nicodemus, if you'll believe in him, you won't perish but have everlasting life. And John 19, verses 38 to 42, give the context where Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea in having rejected what their other peers did, even though most of them did it. They didn't mistreat Jesus. They bowed to him and treated his body with kindness even as others were looking on and probably mocking them. Back to the situation at hand. In the morning after Caiaphas and Annas had prejudged Jesus in the middle of the night, they brought the official Sanhedrin, the council together, to try to stick it to Jesus. They had to get him on record saying that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying it. Christ is the Greek way of saying it, the ways they come into English. And that's the Son of God, the promised one who would be the Savior of the world, the King of Israel. Um, Then they would say, he's guilty of blasphemy. And they knew that that charge alone wouldn't matter at all to Roman rulers, but one thing at a time. Let's get him on our law, and then we'll try to get him on the other law. And of course, Jesus was God, so for him to say he is God is not blasphemy, but truth. Now, why did they have to... Um, why did they have to get him over to the Roman authorities? Because that's what's going to come next in Luke 23. It's very interesting. There are at least three Old Testament prophecies about how the Messiah will be pierced through, right? How the Holy One of God will be pierced. But when you read your Old Testament, what is the way that when they had to execute the death penalty, what is the way that Jewish folks were called to execute the death penalty? Death by stoning. They'd say, this person is guilty of the law. We'd put them in the courtyard. It happens a few times in the page of the Old Testament. And they'd take stones, and as a community, they'd stone the person to death. The Jewish rulers would have loved to have done that to Jesus. But because they were under Roman law, and because Jesus was already that popular, then they knew they couldn't do that. They had to somehow transfer him to Pilate. And they didn't know that in that transfer, even though darkness was all around because of their evil deeds and actions, they were actually in those actions also fulfilling scriptures, how the Messiah, three different times Old Testament states that he would be pierced for sins and they'll look on him whom they have pierced. If you are the Christ, tell us. I love Jesus' initial answer to them. It's so great there. He basically says, uh, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I question you, you're not going to answer me. He knew their minds and hearts. He knew their unbelief and their intellectual dishonesty. It was futile to make a vigorous defense before them or to debate them. With hardened and corrupt hearts, they had rejected their God and King. Their hearts were already set on rejection of Christ and his teachings, not repentance. And there may be some in the hearing of my voice today, and that's, that's you. You've heard all that you're supposed to do in turning to the Lord with all your loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you've already rejected it. Uh, and you say, not gonna debt, not gonna debt. That's George H.W. Bush, right? Not gonna debt, gonna do what I wanna do. Um, so instead of uh, repenting, you're still in rejection, and 
doing this. You're shaking your fist at God. And that's what they were doing. <laughs> Literally, the truth was standing right before them, and they rejected that he was the truth, the person of truth. They rejected that his words were truth. Jesus in John 5 had said of them, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. But here's where it gets really good. Because he says, listen, I, I'm not going to um, tell you. If I tell you, you're not going to believe. Your, your hearts are set on rejection. And if I ask you questions, you're not going to answer them. But circle or underline the word hereafter in verse 69. The other Gospels have this in there too. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. All good Jewish scholars would have known that the Son of Man was a reference back to Daniel's chapter 7 and Daniel 9 where it talked about the Son of Man ruling, reigning, and doing uh, His mighty work and being the one that we all have to give an account to. It was clearly a reference to the Messiah, and Jesus loved to call himself the Son of Man. He was God's Son on earth. Here he was God in Abad, but he also identified with the flesh. He took it on. He lived a human experience, just like we talked about last time. And he was living the perfect life that 100% of us fall short of, so he could be the only one able to be a sacrifice for our sins. It's tremendous that he did that. So he said, you're not going to answer my questions, but... <laughs> Hereafter you will. You're judging me now, but one day you'll appear before me, the ultimate judge of everybody on earth. Their judgment of him was not going to be the final word because God always has the last word. And we're told we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're told that we will give an account to him. Hereafter, you'll be the ones on trial. The Son of Man will sit as the authority on the right hand of the power, the dunamis of God, like dynamite there. And he can blow you up if he wants to. And if this is what you've done to him, if you haven't received him, but instead have rejected him, he'll allow you to die in your sins rather than what he could do for you if in humility you turn to him and let him be that sacrifice that he is for your sins. Well, folks, they blew him off that day, heard him confess that he's the son of God, convicted him of blasphemy, and got ready to bring him to Pilate. They extracted the confession from Jesus, but it was far from over for them. They got what they wanted temporarily, but they were going to lose all that mattered eternally. And there are some people like that within the sound of my voice. In your rejection of God, you're going to get what you seek temporarily, but there may be hell to pay. I love part of my father-in-law's testimony. He, was, he had grown up in church but hadn't really walked with the Lord. He hadn't been born again yet. It hadn't been real. It hadn't become real for him. And one day he was talking to a fella, and Norman said just awful words and things were coming out of my mouth. And the other fella looked at him, a godly man, and said, Norman, there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Hereafter, Jesus said, you're sitting and asking me questions, you're judging me, but hereafter, the great reversal will come and every person on earth will stand before me and give an account. Whether it was Caiaphas, Annas, the members of the Sanhedrin of the soldiers, boy, they thought they really got Jesus. Step one, we got him officially on trial here. Now we can bring him to Pilate and try to get Pilate to kill him. We've done the first part of what we wanted to do. They thought they were the stars of the show, but they were not. 
They were not. They were all just playing their part. This is your hour, Jesus had told them. This is your part. You're just contributing to the background of darkness that will show Jesus to be the brightest star of all. And that's all evil choices can do is contribute to the background of darkness that is the backdrop for all that God will show through His people serving Him. Similar things happen in the world today. All around us, people make decisions that show they do not love Jesus, and they think they are today's stars. (laughs) As they spout their blasphemy, mistreat God's people, shake their fist at heaven, they are just the darkness, though, that will reveal the true stars. I love Daniel 12, 3. It's a great book, Daniel. And in the last chapter, he says, hey, (laughs) Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are righteous, those who turn many to righteousness, will shine like the stars forever and ever. Jesus said he is the light of the world, but then he told his people, you are the light of the world. Together, you're lighting up a dark world. Darkness is just the backdrop for what people will see when they see you serving Christ. Oh, that's so cool to think about. It's ironic, isn't it? Even a God-hater's bad choices don't keep God's will from being done. They just illustrate what it looks like when God's people do what they're supposed to do for Him. Martin Luther used to say, even the devil is God's devil. (laughs) What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that even though Satan and his demons tempt people to sin and often succeed in the short term... Satan's leash is short from God. His power is limited, and he's shown up all the time by saints glorifying God. (laughs) It is so cool to think about. And you see that over and over again throughout the Bible, don't you? So, Joseph was terribly mistreated in by um, Potiphar's wife. He was mistreated in Potiphar's house. He was mistreated in the prison house. He was mistreated in Pharaoh's house, right? The seat of government. But all that was, those sinful choices were just the backdrop for showing Joseph's faith to be a shiny faith, a star that he was. Hey, in the days of Pharaoh, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, right? And God said, I'm going to use you to glorify myself, Pharaoh. And he did. Pharaoh never truly repented. His evil choices were just the backdrop for what God was doing in delivering the children of Israel. You think about the days of Daniel, right? Oh, it's dark when you decide to throw a saint of God in a lion's den, but that was just the backdrop for all that God was going to do. And no time was darker than when Jesus was sold out, was put on sham trials, illegally found He was even found innocent by Pilate and still killed. How's that one? But it was all just the backdrop. So God lets those bad choices stand, but darkness is just the backdrop for God's people shining through for him, starting with, of course, our own Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what would happen if we all went outside right now and looked up into the sky? Would we see stars right now? We wouldn't, would they? We wouldn't see them out there right now. But are they there? They're there even when you can't see them. And not everybody's always going to look on while you're shining for Jesus and see it. Sometimes it's daylight, right? And they can't see it. But as dark decisions are allowed to stand in the sovereign hand of God, the providential hand of God, as it gets darker and darker, you see the stars. You see the stars. Your school may be a dark place. It might just be 
terribly dark there as people do things that dishonor God. (laughs) But you're there as a star to shine, students. Your home, your business, your neighborhood might be a dark place, brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not see much of things going on for Jesus in that place. (laughs) But you're put there by God to shine light in that darkness, to be a star against that backdrop. They didn't realize who Jesus was, although he was right in front of them like stars in the daytime. But as it got darker, boy, would we ever see that Jesus is the light of the world. They were willfully, willfully ignorant. They made their choices in keeping with that, of that rejection of Jesus. What they did to Jesus was prophesied that someone would do, but it didn't have to be them. As you look at the pages of it unfolding, it didn't have to be Judas who betrayed Christ. It would have happened another way. It didn't have to be Caiaphas and Annas. It could have happened another way. It didn't have to be Pilate. It could have happened another way. It was going to happen, but it didn't be those free will agents making choices to dishonor God. They could have made different choices and had a different destiny, and so can you. The script can be rewritten in your life. William Jennings Bryan used to say, destiny is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of choice. It's not something to be waited for, it's something to be obtained. By faith in God, you can write a different script than has been prophesied over you, born to lose, born to fail. You'll never amount to anything. All those words were spoken over Danny Campbell. But when I came to Christ, I started reading what Jesus said about me, what the Bible said about me, and you can too. You've got that position in him, dear saints. They could have made different choices. Let, get this, even after they blew it, they could have made different choices, and God would have received them because that's the wonderful God that he is. Judas, even after he betrayed Christ, could have repented. Instead, he turned away from the church, he turned away from Jesus, and he's in hell. Peter had denied Christ. But what did Peter do? He ran back to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and as soon as he could, he ran and even swam to the Lord when he got an opportunity to jump off the boat and swim to Jesus. Caiaphas and Annas didn't make the right choice. They'll be in hell. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did make the right choice, and they'll be our brothers in heaven. Acts 6-7 says that even some of those priests... A great number of those priests later believed. Isn't that cool to think about? Acts 6, 7. Some of them had literally been responsible for the death of Jesus. They had his blood on their hands. He received them anyway. And as the gospel and the word of God was multiplying, they got in on it. Because God always offers the opportunity for repentance for those that will repent. Folks, every person in every generation is responsible for what they do with Jesus. Don't contribute to how dark it is out there. Don't be a star for Jesus that shines in the midst of the darkness like our Lord and Savior Jesus did. Either way, God's going to be glorified. Don't let him be glorified by your disobedience being part of the dark backdrop. Be glorified by letting your light so shine before men that people see the good works you do for him and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. 
Thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.